Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. Today we're tuning in to the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation's hearing on protecting Americans from robocalls. The subcommittee is uh, communications, media, and broadband. That's right, and uh, it's a big issue, as we all know, as probably all of our viewers have experienced uh, getting some robocalls. But why is it an issue today, here in 2023? That's what the Senate wants to find out. That's right. We'll hear remarks about that on this topic. And yeah, this, this issue keeps coming back into play. You know, the Senate has dealt with this before. Congress has dealt with this before, passed legislation. And why is that? Because technology keeps getting more and more advanced to the point where um, they have to keep passing new legislation, developing new ways of combating it. That's right. In 1991, Congress passed the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And in 2019, we had the Telephone Robocall Abuse Criminal Enforcement and Deterrence Act. Yet, we're still looking at and tackling with this issue. We've even got new developments in terms of AI and what will that mean? Certainly it's being used for robocalls, scaling them up, making them more targeted, more nefarious, more effective. So there's a lot to deal with here and we're, we're gonna hear a lot about that. That's right, let's tune in. Today we will hear from expert witnesses on protecting our constituents from the growing number of fraudulent and illegal robocalls and robotechs. Every month, Americans receive roughly 1.5 billion to 3 billion scam calls and likely illegal telemarketing calls. This is an issue that I'm confident everyone in the room has dealt with. Um, for those of you that have your phones on, I'm sure you're going to receive robocalls and robotechs that are predatory even during this hearing, and I would not be surprised if we did as well. Robocalls, they interrupt sleep. If you're not putting your phones in uh, some privacy mode or sleep mode or turning them off themselves, they interrupt time with friends and family. And as I said, even during hearings, um, I won't be surprised if they came up. So if they do, feel free to hold your phone up and share with the rest of America what's happening while we're in this room. Robocalls have eroded trust in our nation's communications networks. Um, I know uh, many in my family, including myself, that you'll look at the phone now and you're not sure where it's coming from and some of the phone providers are putting scam alerts or maybe it's some other call and folks will look at, a, at their device and they'll drop it down as well. Um, many have become uh, subject to those phishing attacks from those robotechs as well which are costing the American people billions of dollars. In 1991, Congress passed the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the TCPA, and more recently, the Telephone Robocall Abuse Criminal Enforcement and Deterrence Act, uh, which acronym, acronym is TRACED. That was back in 2019. These two laws seek to protect Americans from predatory and unsolicited robocalls and robotechs, giving federal agencies the tools to fight back. And in some ways, the TCPA and TRACE, as they were implemented, um, the number of unsolicited and illegal telemarketing calls has decreased. 
do not call complaints at the FCC have reduced as well, um, not entirely, but by some numbers. And the Federal Communications Commission has issued 500 million in enforcement actions against illegal robocalls over the last 12 months. The FCC has empowered the industry traceback group and phone companies to block by default illegal or unwanted calls based on reasonable evidence. And the Federal Communications Commission provided a statement for today's hearing. And without objection, I would like to enter it into the record. We'll enter that. However, it is important that we recognize that robocalls and robotechs are not just a nuisance. Scammers use our telecom networks to defraud Americans out of an estimated $39 billion. Now, that was just in 2022 alone. That's roughly enough money to provide affordable broadband to the current 21 million households enrolled in the Affordable Connectivity Program for eight years. I hope we understand the magnitude of what that $39 billion year-to-year -year means. Scammers and fly-by-night companies are stealing American families' hard-earned dollars using our telecom networks to do so, and they don't face any consequences. The FCC levies fines, but fines go uncollected, and the company dissolves and moves assets elsewhere. Congress must empower our regulators and enforcement agencies to ensure that when an individual or company breaks the law, they are held to account. Part of the reason these scammers are so effective at tricking consumers and evading enforcement is that the technology is constantly evolving. We will hear testimony that suggests consumer consent for telemarketing is increasingly falsified. Automated bots and other artificial intelligence systems are using public data to consent on behalf of a consumer for calls they never asked for and do not want. Automated robocalls and robotechs are using chatbots and generative artificial intelligence to impersonate a real, live person, lulling the recipient into a false sense of security by mimicking voices and mannerisms. In the most frightening examples, bad actors are playing on our emotions and impersonating loved ones in distress. Earlier this year in the Senate Human Rights Subcommittee, Senator Ossoff and Ranking Member Blackburn, her testimony from Jennifer DeStofno um, of Arizona, who was a victim of a scam call impersonating her daughter. And without objection, I would like to enter her testimony into the record for today's hearing. Hearing none, it's entered. Now, she testified, quote, AI is revolutionizing and unraveling the very foundation of our social fabric by creating doubt and fear in what was once never questioned, the sound of a loved one's voice. This hearing will examine how robocallers are evading enforcement, consider public-private efforts to combat illegal robocalls, unravel how new and evolving technologies are changing the landscape, and investigate what next steps are needed to protect Americans from fraudulent and illegal text messages and calls. Um, I'm very excited that we have the panel that we have with us today. I'll introduce each of you momentarily. Uh, but first, I want to recognize um, a, a friend and a leader um, uh, that is with us today. Um, and I want to turn this over to Ranking Member uh, Fisher uh, for her opening comments. We're tuned in to the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation's hearing on protecting Americans from robocalls. We just heard from U.S. Senator Ben Ray Lujan, a Democrat from New Mexico. He's the chair of the Subcommittee on Communications, Media, and Broadband. 
And he's essentially saying, you know, getting, getting robocalls is becoming more and more common. He even mentioned, you know, if you get a robocall while, during the hearing, hold up your phone so everybody in America can see what it looks like, though I'm sure most of you probably know already. Yeah, it's an indication of just how common and widespread this is. And it's not only during hearings, of course. He mentioned in your sleep, if you don't have your, your phone turned to silent, you'll be getting those robocalls. And in, in many other ways that it just disturbs everyday life. Uh, not to mention, he, he said, uh, eroding, eroding trust in the communications networks that we have and eroding trust in general in in what we know to be true, he, he pointed to a very nefarious practice that we've seen emerging, which is um, impersonating loved ones' voices. So you don't necessarily know that they're right when you hear them on the, on the other end of the line. Right. Imagine you get a call from your brother or your son or your mom. It sounds exactly like your brother or your son or your mom, but it's not. And the person, you know, is going through this conversation with you and they end up, you know, tacitly asking you for some money, you know, maybe, oh, help me, I'm stranded at the, at the train station, I need a ride back home, um, and... It's crazy, really, right? when you think about it. It seems like a small thing, but actually, as we just heard, it's leading to around $39 billion of losses for everyday Americans all around the country, in total, of course, um, being defrauded out of that amount at least in 2022. So we don't know exactly whether that's going up or or remaining the same. But a lot of these people, a lot of these companies are avoid are evading law enforcement. So it's a huge issue. And you know, why hasn't anyone been able to stop these robocallers in the yeah. first place? Well, here's a few reasons. You know, they're cheap to make. Um, they're done by robots, so it's not human beings. So it's uh, this very uh, efficient model where you can just you know press a button and there you go tens yeah. of thousands of calls yeah that's right um, you know it's incredibly profitable so maybe you get caught maybe if you, even if even if you have to face a few lawsuits you're still making money yeah if you just compare the cost benefits and the it it seems to make sense for these criminals and we don't know where they are either so there it's quite easy to evade law enforcement uh, on that front it's easy to scale. You mentioned that it's done by robots, so there's not much, you know, human effort involved. But then it's easy to scale and target a lot of people. Um, that's that makes it incredibly profitable for so for the, these criminals. So, and again, artificial intelligence can be used to make things scale faster. It can be used in so many different ways to make um, all kinds of businesses processes business processes faster. Um, you know, they can develop call lists faster. They could monitor the data that they're getting faster and just yeah. ramp up this whole uh, machine yeah, faster in general. What are some other scams that you've heard of, robocall scams? Oh my gosh. Um, I heard of this one where they, they call your phone for like less than a quarter of a second, so much so that it, it almost doesn't even ring. I think it doesn't even ring. And then you see that you have a missed call. You call that number back, and as soon as you do, you're charged $20 as well as $9 a minute. It's like what happens when you call a uh -huh. foreign country. Wow. And um, there's so many more. We can get into that later. We will have more on the Senate hearings on uh, the Senate's hearing on protecting Americans from robocalls after the break.
Welcome back. We are tuned in to the Senate, the, the Senate hearing on protecting Americans from robocalls. It's part of the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. And we'll be coming up, we'll be hearing from the chair of that committee, Maria Cantwell, for her opening remarks. We're expecting to hear from witnesses who can tell us more about how AI, various uh, law enforcement issues we're facing, and what is that? What, are, what is the threat and how is it being dealt with? That's right. Congress says robocalls aren't just a nuisance. Robocalls defraud Americans out of billions of dollars every year. Let's tune in to find out how. Good morning and thank you, Chairman Lujan, for holding this hearing. The persistent issue of illegal robocalls has been a longstanding concern of mine. Nationwide, illegal and spoofed robocalls continue to be the number one consumer complaint. I want to ensure that we have the right tools in place to protect consumers from these calls that prey on them. As we all know, our phones give us connection to the world around us, whether it's calling family, friends, or colleagues, scheduling appointments, or summon summoning emergency services. They are integrated into our daily lives. Our phone numbers are a very personal part, part of our identities as well. We use them to verify who we are, and we hold on to them for decades, sometimes for a lifetime. But as we know too well, this allows scammers to reach directly into our homes and into our pockets. Bad actors are increasingly savvy in the technologies they use to defraud consumers. This can result in devastating financial losses. Criminals are engaging in more targeted calls and impersonating businesses like banks to steal personal data or commit financial fraud. Phone scams are still yielding the highest reported fraud losses per person, despite the rapid growth of scammers on social media platforms. In fact, fraud losses due to phone scams are higher than ever. According to a recent report, over 68 million Americans lost approximately $40 billion to phone scams in 2021 alone. In many ways, it feels like we have had this conversation so many times over so many years. But crucially, in 2019, Congress passed the TRACE Act to put wide-ranging solutions in motion that would reduce illegal robocalls. I commend my colleague, Senator Thune, for leading this legislation, and I was glad to be a co-sponsor of it. Previously, I also led the Spoofing Prevention Act with Senator Bill Nelson, which passed into law in 2018. This law was a foundational effort to increase penalties and boost enforcement tools that fight illegal spoofing. Deterrence through fines for illegal robocall activities is a key part of cracking down on nuisance calls that endanger consumers. On this front, federal agencies, particularly the Justice Department, must improve how they work together to ensure that unpaid fines are collected. There are no silver bullets to eradicate the scourge of illegal scam calls and texts. Lawmakers have to remain vigilant and monitor how illegal robocall schemes are evolving. We must be able to empower consumers with the knowledge of who is actually calling them and the ability to block illegal callers. We all share the goal of being able to pick up our phones safely, 
trusting that we know who's gonna be on the other end of the line. But we are not there just yet. The industry has made commendable efforts to reduce the prevalence of these illegal calls, including through advancements in call author, author, author and to authorize them and traceback technology. New statistics from the federally designated traceback consortium, ITC, indicate that certain common robocall scams have started to decline over the last couple of years. Continuing this trend will take the united cooperation of all voice service providers. As lawmakers, we need to maintain this momentum and ensure that traceback efforts are fully supported. I urge the FCC to spend its time and resources to prevent genuine criminal activity and create meaningful safe harbors for businesses acting in good faith compliance with the law. I look forward to hearing from today's witnesses about where we are in this effort and where additional assistance may be needed. Thank you for being here and thank you, Chairman Lujan. Thank you, Senator Fisher. And I want to thank you again for uh, being with us today. Um, but I want to commend you for your leadership in uh, so many ways, but especially in this case, when it comes to robocalls and robotechs and what you have been doing to work to uh, bring support to the American people. So thank you so very much for that. Thank you for staying with us. We are tuned in to Protecting Americans from Robocalls, a hearing by the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. We just heard from Senator Fisher, who talked about the phone numbers, um, how, how, how they're this personal thing. You know, some people have you know, phone numbers, their whole, the same phone number their whole lives. Um, but these, our phone numbers are, are under attack in one sense by scammers and fraudsters. Um, you know, telemarketers, they're just trying to make a buck, but it can get really annoying um, from them as well. And dangerous, of course. Um, you know, mentioning the the amount of scams that come through robocalls. Of course, um, Senator Fisher no noted that there were forty billion dollars worth of phone scams in twenty twenty alone. So it's a it's a real threat, um, and so it's targeting our identity and it's targeting our pockets. It's targeting our sense of trust and safety, of course, um, and and these attacks are getting more and more savvy, as we just heard. Um, it's leading to, to more and more attacks that come from unusual, in unusual ways. We just heard earlier about the, the ways that your loved one's voices can be imitated, and there are so many other ways. Right, yeah, I heard about this one, one scam where, um, yeah, again, they, they, they call your phone for a few seconds, and then they, they, you call them back, um, and you get charged 20 bucks yes. for that one call. Um, you, wouldn't know, you wouldn't know at the time, right? Right. There was, I actually got a scam once where I got a text from somebody who I thought was a friend of mine. Um, they were impersonating me, a friend of mine. Okay. And um, they, they were asking me for some money. And, and I, I realized after a few back and forth that this was a scammer, not my friend. They, but they did some research on my background wow. to figure out who my friend was. And, Spooky. You know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> weird. We also heard her talk about how a recent report said in 2021, 68 million Americans, again, like you were saying, lost $40 billion. Mm -hmm. um, she mentioned different 
legislation that Congress has been putting forward um, in 2018. We heard earlier about the legislation in 2019 as well as in 1991. But yet this problem still exists and it's even growing because of technology like artificial intelligence. And so Senator Fisher did point to some areas she thought could be tackled. She said the Justice Department has to be very vigilant about actually collecting fines. So it's it's interesting to note these people can be fined. That is possible. I'm sure there are some issues with that too, but they need to actually collect the fines. Um, and she suggested that uh, lawmakers need to really monitor how these schemes are evolving because they will continue to evolve. So that's an ongoing issue. Um, and support traceback efforts. So that's there are some solutions in there. That's right, yeah. And there's also a type of vigilantism happening yeah. where people actually scam the scammers. Well, they don't scam them. They, they give them their, a credit card, but it's like a credit card with no, they give them the credit card information, but it has no money behind it. Ah. And then their account gets hit and there's no money there. And they're able to trace who the company is through that, through that hit to their account. Interesting. And then they go and they enter arbitration wow. <laughs> with the scammers. Wow. And some people are making thousands of dollars a year doing this. Incredible. All right, noted. Well, you're tuned into the Senate hearing on protecting Americans from robocalls. We'll be hearing further from the committee and from witnesses. Stay tuned. Thank you for staying with us. We are tuned in to, uh, to the Senate hearing on protecting Americans from robocalls with the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Congress says robocalls aren't just a nuisance. Uh, robocalls defraud Americans out of billions of dollars every year. That's right. It's a huge issue and one that the Senate committee really wants to find out what's being done, what could be done, and where do we need to go from here. So we're looking at a whole range of issues, and we're going to get into that very shortly. Stay tuned. Ms. Saunders, who is the senior attorney from the National Consumer Law Center, thank you so much for being with us today. Ms. Megan Brown, a member of the United States Chamber of Commerce's Cybersecurity Leadership Council and partner. Willie Ryan, I believe, is with us as well. Wiley, um, Miss, Mr. Josh Burko, Berkey. Like the city, I appreciate that, uh, Josh. Mr. Josh Berkey, Executive Director, Industry Traceback Group, and Vice President, Policy and Advocacy for U.S. Telecom. Thank you so much as well. And Mr. Mike Rudolph, the Chief Technology Officer from UMail. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Ms. Saunders, the floor is yours for your opening statement for five minutes. Uh, Senator Fisher, I appreciate the opportunity to testify today on what needs to be done to protect Americans from robocalls. I provide my testimony today on behalf of the low-income clients of the National Consumer Law Center and the Consumer Federation of America. The current regulatory structure allows criminals access to Americans' wallets. As you cited, billions of dollars are stolen every year through scams executed over this nation's telephones. At the same time, the combination of scam calls, along with the onslaught of illegal and unwanted telemarketing calls, have damaged our trust in our phones and made it more difficult for 
legitimate wanted messages to reach us. The FCC has been trying to solve the problem, but to date, its methods have not succeeded. In my testimony, you can see a graph of the, of the number of robocalls and telemarketing calls and scam calls over the years, and it looks like that unfortunately we are about today where we were in 2019 uh, in terms of the combined number of calls. But either the FCC does not have sufficient legal tools to stop the calls, or it has not yet determined how to employ those, deploy those tools effectively. The Commission has issued numerous regulations to implement the Trace Act, brought multiple enforcement actions against scam callers and their complicit voice service providers, yet the numbers of calls and the losses to Americans steep, keep, are continuing. The problem is that complicit voice service providers responsible for these calls are making money for transmitting them. And as FCC Commissioner Jeffrey Stark said, quote, illegal robocalls will continue so long as those initiating and facilitating them can get away with it and profit from it, end quote. To eliminate these calls, there must be incentives for compliance which there are not currently. We believe that the calls can be dramatically reduced, but the resolution requires a shift in emphasis by the FCC. The primary goal of the FCC's actions should be to protect the nation's telephone subscribers from the scam calls that are stealing billions of dollars. To do that requires a change from ensuring that calls can be completed and protecting voice service providers' access to the telephone numbers, telephone network, towards shielding consumers from these illegal calls. If the FCC were to adopt a system under which it quickly suspends the ability of a voice service provider to participate in the network once that provider is determined to be a repeat offender, we think that would be a, a magic bullet. This is along the lines of the temporary restraining order procedure established in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. There are procedures that can be used that we think would change the incentive structure and actually cause a reduction in the calls. Additionally, the FCC's current regulations prohibit telemarketers from calling our phones without express written consent. Telemarketers routinely ignore the specific requirements of these regulations and make a, about a billion illegal telemarketing calls every month. Then they defend themselves from government and private enforcement by relying on specious consent agreements that were either completely fabricated or based on supposed consent agreements sold and resold and sold again by lead generators. The, the FCC could actually eliminate this entire business model by simply reiterating its current regulations. Instead, unfortunately, it has proposed new regulations that are less protective of consumers. In a nutshell, we believe that the FCC could eliminate most of these, these illegal calls by changing their current emphasis, 
In a civilization in which we can take pictures of Saturn's rings, the failure to solve this problem is not a matter of technology. It's a question of whether the people in power actually want to solve it. Thank you very much. You're watching the Senate's hearing titled Protecting Americans from Robocalls, chaired by uh, the Subcommittee on Communications, Media, and Broadband, Senator Ben Ray Lujan, a Democrat from New Mexico. We just heard from Margaret Saunders, a senior attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. She's saying that billions of dollars are stolen every year by scammers using robocalls and fraudsters using the same technology. And she identified the FCC as a key player in this, of course, saying that it has some tools, uh, but it may not be using them effectively, or perhaps it doesn't have the resources to implement the tools it already has. So that's an interesting point here. There are solutions she's identified that she thinks could be put into place fairly quickly. Um, right. They've been, they, they keep doing this um, because they keep making money, is what she's saying. You know. Um, you know, you break a few laws, but you make a few bucks. If it's if you if you make more money than you spend in lawsuits or developing evasive technology or methods, um, you know, it could be a good business model if you know you're okay with stealing from people. So that's why one of her major recommendations was to really knock out service providers who are complicit with you know, uh, re allowing these robocalls to take place on their service. So she said, suggested that if you suspend these service providers, that would really stop them from doing it. Right, and she was talking about how the FCC really needs to shift its focus to shielding consumers from illegal calls. And if a consumer gets one illegal call, the next one will mark the, the, the company making the illegal call and uh, one strike and you're out kind of things, which is talking about um, really increasing up the disincentivization of illegal calls. And she also pointed to telemarketers as part of this and the, the ways that they get around the, the laws that are currently in place and using what she called specious agreements, things that may not even be actually correct. They're fabricated, potentially, she's, she's saying. And, um, and she suggests that actually the FCC already has regulations they can use in that point as well to, to really rein this in. But she warned that the FCC is actually considering weaker regulations to put in place instead. So that's something we can watch out for as well. Right. Weaker regulations don't exactly sound like they would make a difference, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, to examine that further. Um, so what are some other robocalls that you've heard of? Yeah, there was that one... Um, I mentioned before about the one, the one time, the one ring scam. But yeah. then there was um, the "Can you hear me?" scam. It's called where they call you and they say, uh, "Hello, you know, I'm so and so calling from wherever. Um, can you hear me?" And you say, "Yes," and then they hang up, right? But little did you know that that call was actually recorded, and they can then use the "yes" mm. uh, in other recordings to make it sound like you gave consent to this or to that wow. and um, take money from you that way. And I, I actually have a friend, an older friend, probably in his 70s, maybe 80s now, who lost tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, gosh. They took everything out of his uh, one bank account that he had. Oh, that is so sad. And you know, that really speaks to the point that a lot of the people who are vulnerable are older 
and they're already vulnerable and yet they're not as savvy when it comes to these kinds of things and the threats that are out there. So we really need, do need to take care of everybody, but of course, everybody's targeted as well. So this is, this is for everybody to hear. So let's tune back into that hearing. After the break. Welcome back. We are tuning in today to Protecting Americans from Robocalls, a Senate hearing on robocalls chaired by uh, U.S. Senator Ben Ray Lujan, a Democrat from New Mexico. Uh, he's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, communications, media, and broadband. Um, we'll get back into that hearing uh, right now. The floor is yours for five minutes. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, Chairman Lujan, Ranking Member Fisher, and members of the subcommittee. My name is Megan Brown, and I'm a partner in the telecom, media, and technology practice at Wiley Rhine. I'm here on behalf of the U.S. Chamber's Institute for Legal Reform. The U.S. Chamber is the world's largest business federation, representing the interests of more than three million businesses of all sizes and sectors, as well as state and local chambers and industry associations. Its Institute for Legal Reform is a division of the chamber that promotes civil justice reform at the global, national, state, and local levels. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. The chamber has been involved in robocalling issues for years and offers the perspective of the American business community, which values reliable and trustworthy ways to communicate with customers and the public. This is a highly regulated space with lots of litigation, something the chamber has been vocal about for years because TCPA remains a major source of class action litigation that in its view does little to help consumers. So the chamber today would like the, the committee to leave with four main points. First, American businesses support cracking down on illegal and abusive robocalls. Businesses want consumers to continue to trust the ecosystem and answer their calls and texts. American businesses work hard to comply with these very complex regulations at the federal and state level. They are hurt by caller ID spoofing and fraud against consumers. And because of those harms, companies are fighting back against robocall scams. For example, Marriott did its own investigation into millions of calls placed illegally using misusing its brand. It worked with the industry traceback group and Umail, and then it sued the malicious robocallers, getting an injunction against the marketing agency that placed all these calls. Bless you. U.S. businesses take the law seriously and work hard to comply with it. Second, Congress has passed major legislation recently on a bipartisan basis to address illegal robocalls. You can ensure that your hard work bears fruit by encouraging the Department of Justice to make robocall scams and illegal spoofing a priority. The Federal Communications Commission has taken major steps to implement all of this new congressional direction. And I know FCC staff have been working really hard on these issues. They've issued enormous forfeiture orders against bad actors that blatantly break the law, and its cease and desist orders have been particularly impactful. Likewise, the Federal Trade Commission has been addressing scams using illegal, illegal robocalls and texts, and state attorneys general have partnered with federal agencies and bring their own cases. DOJ, however, is a vital partner here, and Congress should urge the department to make enforcement a priority by acting aggressively on the referrals it gets from the FCC and by bringing its own cases directly for violations of laws like the Truth in Caller ID Act, but also mail and wire fraud for some of these really egregious scams. Third, unfortunately, the TCPA's private right of action and statutory damages continue to fuel abusive litigation against American businesses. 
The Institute for Legal Reform has tracked lawsuit abuse for years, and the operating environment under the TCPA continues to hurt businesses and consumers. Class actions seeking enormous damages and attorney's fees, professional TCPA plaintiffs, and the threat of crushing liability for mistakes creates a challenging environment for American businesses. An important takeaway here is that the TCPA class actions and those large settlements do not address the bad actors that are intentionally violating federal law to send millions of illegal calls. Here I have in mind uh, people like Adrian Abramovich, Greg Robbins, John Spillers, or the shell companies that they use to make massive numbers of fraudulent uh, calls, often pretending to be legitimate American businesses. Fourth, the chamber knows that some on this committee are considering additional legislation. Uh, Congress has been active on robocalling over the past several years, and the chamber suggests that if the committee goes forward with legislation, it should also consider modest but important changes that would limit the abuse of our judicial system through TCPA class actions that do not stop bad actors. So in sum, the chamber appreciates the committee's attention to these issues, as well as the hard work of the FCC, state AGs, and the other panelists here to go after bad actors that abuse our networks, steal corporate goodwill, and harm consumers. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. Very much. Get your testimony today. Mr. Berkey, the floor is yours. Five minutes. Thank you, Chair Luan and Ranking Member Fisher for the opportunity to join this important conversation. I am Josh Berkey, Executive Director of the Industry Traceback Group, or ITG, and I also serve as Vice President Policy and Advocacy at U.S. Telecom, the Broadband Association. U.S. Telecom established the ITG to address the illegal robocall problem, and today, pursuant to the Trace Act, the ITG is designated by the FCC as the official consortium to trace back unlawful robocalls. We are proud to support the FCC, FTC, DOJ, state attorneys general, and other government efforts to stop illegal robocalls through our traceback data. And I'm pleased to be here today to discuss that collective effort and how Congress can bolster it. As I explained in my written testimony, various technological and economic changes have made it cheap and easy for bad actors to call American consumers from anywhere in the world. All anyone needs to initiate robocalls is a computer, some associated software, and a website. In the past, providers had no, true, had no way to know the true origin of the calls. Industry traceback solves for that by piecing together the entire path of any given suspicious call, regardless of the number of providers involved. We obtain within a day or two the same information that would take enforcement agencies multiple months to get via subpoenas. We're watching the Senate's Protecting Americans from Robocalls hearing the chair, the, the subcommittee on communications, media, and uh, broadband is hosting it, the cha chaired by U.S. Senator Ben Ray Lujan, a Democrat from New Mexico. Um, I just want to briefly introduce some of the people we've heard from just now. We heard from um, uh, Margot Sanders, senior attorney, excuse me, no, uh, that was uh, Megan Brown, the partner from uh, Wiley Rain. She's also with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. She's a representative from there. We heard from uh, Josh Berku, executive director of Industry Traceback Group. Um, they use technology to uh, keep track of these robocallers. And uh, what we heard was Megan Brown saying that American businesses really do care about this issue and they, are, they support this crackdown that the Senate and Congress has really been trying to apply for the past few years. They've had a dedicated effort, some 
extra legislation, but still we need more. Um, they're working hard to comply, she says, and um, they're also fighting back against robocall scams because it's still happening at such a large scale that even businesses need to tackle this on their own. That's right. And while we were watching the hearing, I actually got uh, a few, I think, uh, yeah, one or two robocalls on my phone. Wow. I used to live in Ohio, so I have an Ohio phone number. Okay. And um, I get all these oh f calls from Ohio phone numbers. Um, yeah. But I don't keep in touch with anybody in Ohio. <laughs> That's so interesting. And actually, another thing that I know about um, robocalls that is happening is that um, they can somehow change the location of their phone number to be closer to the person that they're targeting, which is, of course, illegal and totally destroys trust in who you're picking up a call from. But I don't know if that's in play, but uh, Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. That's why I don't change my number to a New York number, uh, because all these fake calls come in as Ohio, and if it's coming from Ohio, I know it's fake. Good point. That's the way to do it. So how can you combat against all these robocalls, all yeah. these fraudsters? Well, one thing you can do is you can get on the do not call list. Um, while it's not 100% effective, and some of these companies do just blatantly ignore that, um, it, it is effective in some cases. You can go to do not call gov. You can also go uh, call 1-888-382-1222. Two, two. Just make sure that if you call them, you, you're calling from the number that you want to have protected from robocalls and scammers. And that concludes our coverage on the Senate's hearing uh, to protect Americans uh, from robocalls. We will have more news after the break. Ready and determined, Israel's military says it's prepared to enter the next stage of the war. It's up to the Israeli government to make the call. Israeli police and intelligence release interrogation video of captured Hamas gunmen who took part in the October 7th terror attack. One detainee describes his orders. The Taliban seeks to formally join China's Belt and Road Initiative. The Taliban controls vast mineral resources that would allow China to better manipulate the global economy. We dig deep into this. A former lawyer for former President Trump, Jenna Ellis, pleads guilty to a criminal charge of making false statements in the Georgia RICO case. Unprecedented. Former President Trump signing up for the New Hampshire presidential primary in person. Find out which famous political person he compared himself to. Republicans meet in a closed-door session yet again to pick a new nominee for speaker. Is the third time a charm? China's defense minister fired after disappearing from the public eye for weeks. He's the second senior leader to leave in three months. A one-time lawyer for former President Trump is pleading guilty to a criminal charge in Georgia. Jenna Ellis is the fourth co-defendant to take a guilty plea deal. Here's a look. How do you plead to aiding and abetting false statements and writings in, under accusation 23SC190514? Guilty. And is this your signature along with Mr. Hoag's 
signature on the accusation. It is. And is this guilty plea freely and voluntarily given with full knowledge of the charges against you? It is. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. Ellis elaborated that she relied on information from other lawyers, but didn't double-check everything they said. In terms of her plea agreement, include five years probation, 100 hours of community service, a $5,000 fine, and cooperating with prosecutors. Former President Trump signing up for the New Hampshire presidential primary in person. He's now the first former president to file such paperwork in person more than once. Trump commented on the legal battles he and others are facing. If you want to challenge the result of an election, they hound you. Look what happened this weekend with two good people. They hound them and they scare them and they... But we don't get scared. We don't get scared. I'll tell you what. I don't mind being Nelson Mandela because I'm doing it for a reason. Trump says the country is facing threats from within and from the outside and says he'll save the country from such threats. In 2020, Trump sent then-Vice President Mike Pence to file his paperwork for the contest. That was in keeping with the tradition of other incumbents who also sent surrogates. Meanwhile, in other Trump-related news, the former president is at a New York court today. His former lawyer, Michael Cohen, is set to testify in the civil fraud case. Trump and Cohen traded barbs as they arrived in court. Before entering the courtroom, Trump called Cohen a liar who's trying to, quote, get a better deal for himself. Cohen was scheduled to testify last week but didn't appear in court, citing health reasons. When asked about seeing Trump in court, he said he looked forward to the reunion. The search for a new House Speaker continues today on Capitol Hill. Eight candidates, including Congressman Byron Donalds, made their pitches to fellow Republicans at a two-and-a-half-hour closed-door forum. They also answered questions about how they would handle the job. My pitch is very simple. Uh, this is going to be a process where it's uh, member-driven, not speaker-driven. Uh, we need to get back to work, secure our border, fund our government responsibly, and hold this administration accountable. Byron's uh, a friend. He's someone that I've worked with closely um, since he's been in Congress. Obviously, I nominated him on the floor of the House in January. Uh, we've talked at length about what he would like to try to do to move the conference forward, and so uh, the room I swore behind Byron. I asked which of the candidates would support the prompt full release of the January 6th tapes to the public, and every single one of the candidates said they would do that. I didn't get in this to come in second or, or to lose, but I think it bring, I bring a different kind of background. I'm uh, spending 25 years uh, bringing organizations together. Republicans are due to meet again this morning to begin choosing their nominee behind closed doors. They will use a series of secret ballots. It's not clear whether any Republican can get the votes needed to claim the speakership. Congressman Dan Muser has withdrawn from the race. The congressman says any one of the candidates could be speaker. Six of the eight new candidates for speaker voted to overturn Trump's 2020 loss to President Biden. The two remaining candidates, Majority Whip Tom Emmer and Representative Austin Scott, did not vote to block the certification of the election results. When we come back, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser proposes new legislation to curb crime in the district. The mayor says the changes would recognize the day-to-day -day challenges officers face. And a super fog in Louisiana is blamed for a massive pileup. 
It caused at least seven deaths and dozens of injuries. We have that and more after the break. Back to the news. Republicans today trying for the third time to choose a speaker nominee that sticks. A number of candidates are running, most of them not among the ranks of leadership. NTD's Melina Wisecup joins us now from, with updates from Capitol Hill. Melina, does it look like they're getting closer to unifying behind a speaker where they are right now? Well, honestly, from what we've seen in the past three, uh, two times that we've done this before, well, we don't know if they're closer to getting a speaker, but we do know that they're on the verge of choosing their nominee right now for the third time. They've been in that closed-door meeting uh, all morning since 9 a.m., round after round, voting to whittle down that list of nine candidates that originally entered the race, and now they're down to the last two. So where we're at right now is Republicans just cast their ballot for the last two uh, candidates here, and that is Tom Emmer, the Republican whip and Mike Johnson who's the vice chair of the Republican conference they just cast their ballots so we're waiting to see who emerges as the victor here it is really looking like Tom Emmer will emerge as the nominee just considering what we saw during the first couple of rounds of voting today Emmer constantly emerged as the victor from all of those votes he now the last vote they had he won 107 votes compared to uh, Mike Johnson who just won around 56 or 57 so he has a significant lead over Johnson. We're expecting him to be the victor. As for that question you just asked, are they getting closer to choosing their speaker? Well, the question with Emmer here is that he may have some trouble securing the votes of the most conservative end of the Republican Party because of certain legislative votes that he's taken in the past. Things like supporting Ukraine aid. We spoke about this yesterday. He also supported same-sex marriage uh, back last year. So these are things that the conservative members in the Republican conference may not be willing to rally behind and go for it. The question is, will they be willing to give that up and join behind Emmer just for the sake of getting a speaker in that position? As of right now, it, we're not confident that they'll be able to do that. And when I spoke to Mike Gallagher, a congressman who just left the meeting earlier, he said he's not confident either. Take a look at this. Are you concerned at all that the most conservative end of your party will reject him because of his views on things such as same-sex marriage or the Ukraine aid, things like that? Yes. Well, look at the last two weeks. Uh, it seems like uh, nobody can get to 217. So, I mean, I've, my theory from the start is that we need to abide by the rule. I actually don't know if it's instantiated in the conference rules or whether it's just like the unofficial practice, which is that whoever gets the majority in conference, everyone has to unite behind that person on the floor. I thought that was true of McCarthy. I thought it was true of Scalise. I thought it was true of Jordan. And I hope it will be true of whoever gets the most votes, Emma or somebody else. Now, earlier this morning, Congressman Ralph Norman, who's a member on the House Freedom Caucus, which is considered a more conservative caucus within the Republican Party, he said that the group had not decided whether or not they would support Emmer. And then just moments ago, I caught up with Scott Perry, who's also the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. He told me that they hadn't taken an official position. He wouldn't commit to voting for Emmer. So we could see some stray votes here yet again. And that begs the question of, will we be right back here in the same position of them having to go for a fourth nominee come maybe a week from now. So we'll have to see how it goes from here. Will Emmer be able to get the floor votes needed? I don't know. That's the question right now, Steph. Sure is. Thanks so much, Melina. Great to hear your updates. Israel's military says it is ready and determined for the next stage in the war. 
A spokesperson today said the military is just waiting for political instruction at this point. Our fighters, the IDF fighters, are ready and determined in the field. They continue training for the day the order is given. We have long weeks of fighting ahead of us. We will act on the most suitable operational timing and according to political instructions. The army also says people in Gaza should continue moving south as the Israeli military increases attacks on Gaza, which is in the north. Gaza City, which is in the north. He also said the military is working on the release of hostages, which he called a top priority. This comes amid rumors of a confidence crisis between the Israeli military and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On Monday, Israel's largest circulation newspaper published a stinging attack of the government. Israelis are frustrated by the security failures before the Hamas attack and slow response to it. Neither the government nor the military have taken responsibility for it. The paper wrote that a crisis of confidence had developed between Netanyahu and the military. Netanyahu, the defense minister, and the army chief of staff rebuffed the claims, saying they have, quote, complete and mutual trust and a clear unity of purpose. Netanyahu already saw low approval ratings before the attack. After the attack, the numbers plunged even more. He's frequently criticized in mainstream Israeli media. According to Axios, Israel is willing to delay its ground invasion of Gaza for a few days for hostage talks. The report cites a senior Israeli official as saying both Israel and the Biden administration want to exhaust every effort to try to get hostages out of Gaza. Google has temporarily disabled the ability to see live traffic conditions in Israel on Google Maps and the Waze app. It comes as the country prepares for a potential ground invasion into Gaza. Google didn't say whether the tools would be disabled in Israel, Gaza, or both, or whether the action was at the request of the Israel Defense Forces. But Google says users will still be able to get map routes to specific places and estimated time of arrivals. Last year, the tech company made a similar move after Russia invaded Ukraine when it temporarily disabled real-time vehicle data. Israeli police and intelligence released footage of their interrogation of captured Hamas terrorists who took part in the October 7th terror attack. The video shows a handcuffed man describing the orders he and others received regarding Israeli civilians. The instructions regarding civilians were to kill men and hold women, elders, and children hostages. Another detainee said they were told their prize for bringing captives would be a new home and $10,000. More than 200 hostages remain in Gaza. The San Diego Office of Customs and Border Patrol warned Hamas terrorists may try to enter the U.S. It said individuals inspired by the Israel-Hamas conflict might travel from the Middle East and cross the southwestern border. The unclassified document includes information on terrorist group symbols law enforcement can look for. It also advises officials to check a person's associations with military or security groups. The document further suggests asking about any family ties to terror groups. An estimated 6 million illegal entries across the southern border have occurred since 2021. Are American-made weapons being used against Israel? We speak with Bart Markoy's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs about recent media reports indicating this. 
Bart Marcois, thank you for joining us again. A series of media reports indicate that American-made weapons are ending up in the hands of terrorists. Tell us about where these weapons are said to be coming from. Well, some of them obviously came from Afghanistan. The Biden administration left Afghanistan in a shameful, uh, disgraceful exit, leaving behind somewhere between 40 and $82 billion worth of uh, American war materiel. Part of the shame is that nobody really knows how much they left behind. Some of that is uh, finding its way to, to Hamas and to any bad actor around the world. When you have those enormous dumps of ammunition that we left behind, then you're not going to leave those and say, well, we can't use those because we don't use American weapons. So they would, they would be on the market looking for American weapons. And what's the best place in the market to find American weapons but Ukraine? We send uh, over $100 billion uh, to Ukraine over the last couple of years. And Ukraine is notoriously corrupt. Some of these are leaking out of Ukraine and being sold on the international market. In other cases, Russia is actually seizing weapons from Ukrainian soldiers when they capture them. And they will send them yeah. as trophies to their surrogates around the world. What can be done to ensure these weapons stop flowing uh, into the hands of terrorists? Chris, if I could answer that, I could be a, a hero. I don't know. I, they, are, they are always going, as long as they have money, they're going to be able to buy weapons. I guess the, the short answer is, my short answer to everything, produce more American energy, stop throttling Ameri the American fossil fuels industry, because that is what is funding all of these wars and all this instability uh, around the world is the fact that we are not producing oil and gas. And so we've tripled the price of oil, we've tripled the price of gas, and the people benefiting, benefiting from that more than anyone else are Russia and Iran. So they are free and their surrogates are free to have to create mischief and evil everywhere around the world that they want to. And Bart, the White House is saying Iran actively facilitates uh, rocket attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. What's the significance of these attacks in lieu of the war going on between Israel and Hamas? Oh, they definitely uh, facilitate those attacks. They, they provide the terrorists with targeting information, with GPS coordinates, with, with uh, timing uh, counsel, you know, do it at this time of day or this time of night, uh, do it uh, now when the uh, defenses are, are uh, perhaps uh, less robust than at some other time of day. They are probably there by their sides as military advisors. Iran operates through surrogates and their surrogates are legion. What about the significance of these um, attacks in lieu of, yeah, Israel and Hamas? You know, could this whole, uh, could these attacks escalate the situation there? You bet they can. And that's, that's why Iran is doing it. It's a warning to, to the United States, don't get too big for your britches. You're not the world's only superpower anymore. You are a superpower but you're not a hyperpower anymore. Iran has missiles that have a range of over 1,200 miles with 
fairly good accuracy and all kinds of missiles with shorter range as well. And they can be fitted with high explosive warheads. Those warheads could take out an entire city block, one warhead, one city block. Um, imagine what that would do to, to uh, you know, the city of Haifa or the city of Tel Aviv. Imagine also what it would do to some place much closer to uh, an American military base. They're saying, we can get you right now with cheap rockets used by Hezbollah or by uh, Iraqi, uh, Iran-aligned Iraqi militias. But if we got into it in a big way, you would be getting hundreds of those per hour and they would obliterate your military base. You do not, you, America, do not have sufficient protection at your bases yeah. to fight us. So don't take us on in a head-to-head -head war. All right, Bart Marcois, thank you very much. And staying with the Middle East, the Taliban says it wants to formally join China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a key part of the Chinese Communist regime's efforts to position itself as an alternative economic partner to the U.S. What would the Taliban's membership entail, and what would be the implications? We spoke with national security correspondent for the Epoch Times, Andrew Thornbrook, for insights. Andrew Thornbrook, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on again. I'd like to look at the Belt and Road Initiative and Afghanistan's potential involvement in it. We've got um, their technical team heading to Beijing. What, what do you think they hope they're hoping to accomplish here? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Steph. It's a pleasure to be here. So this technical team that uh, the Taliban are sending to Beijing, it really serves the singular purpose of trying to hash out the diplomatic and economic uh, implications of how the Taliban can join the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, there's been a number of setbacks for them, primarily that there's no nation on earth uh, that currently recognizes the Taliban as the de jure legitimate government of Afghanistan, and that includes China. Now, China has gone further than any other nation and sent an ambassador to the Taliban, but they have not formally recognized it as the de jure government. And so there's going to be a lot of work here to be done between the two powers to sort of overcome that hurdle, as well as any diplomatic fallout that uh, might occur uh, internationally as a result of it. And considering the nature of the Taliban, the history of the Taliban, uh, what do you think could be the potential implications here in terms of terrorism? Yeah, so I think that's going to be a big hurdle for uh, China, as well as the international community. Um, in terms of China, we, we have, of course, seen worries in China for some time about Islamic terrorism. An Islamic terrorist attack is actually the reason they initially gave for the crackdown on the Uyghurs and other Muslim, predominantly Muslim ethnic minorities. Uh, so, so, and it's currently still their excuse for the justification of human rights abuses against those peoples. Uh, internationally, if it does go forward, uh, there will also be, of course, an increased risk that the monies flowing into Afghanistan will further prop up uh, terrorist groups. We know, for example, uh, that ISIS is still quite active in Afghanistan, and uh, it could absolutely fuel uh, inadvertently uh, a resurgence of that group there. And the Taliban leaders are saying that they have minerals galore. They've got a lot to share with China. How will this partnership um, you know, impact both countries, would you say? Yeah, so both both com uh, both countries are looking to make a, a quick profit, as it were. Uh, so they're they're primarily focused on uh, the Messinec mine at this point. Uh, it's 
Afghanistan's largest copper deposit, worth probably about $50 billion worth of copper that's untapped right now. Uh, and so both powers are really cash-strapped at present. Uh, we've seen the Taliban struggle to, to implement really anything worthwhile in terms of infrastructure. They just don't have any money, and they need to bring in uh, that revenue. As for China, China has its own economic woes. We've actually seen that in the Belt and Road Initiative with countries pulling out of the Belt and Road Initiative because China simply can't invest what they said they would be investing at this stage. Uh, so, so both countries really looking to shore up uh, a little more economic uh, independence for themselves. And so briefly, Andrew, next steps, what should we be watching for? Yeah, well, from the U.S. perspective, we really need to be watching to see how desperate China is to start cutting deals with these sort of unrecognized powers. It's, it's not fair necessarily to call Taliban a non-state power, but they are not recognized as the de jure power within Afghanistan. And that could really, really help demonstrate how far China is willing to go to cut out against U.S. influence and start really honing this what it's called, what it and Russian leadership have called this multipolar world order, in which they're particularly trying to suck away U.S. influence in Asia and the Middle East. Uh, so, so this could really indicate that China is making a move to consolidate its power in that region of the world. All right, Andrew Thornbrook, national security correspondent for the Epic Times, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Steph. It's a pleasure. After the break, cryptocurrency's role in terrorist financing has been put under the microscope amid the ongoing war in the Middle East. How much crypto is used in terrorist financing? Ukraine trying to take on its oligarchs for alleged financial crimes. Find out why the country's justice minister says that's now possible. And Russia addresses rumors of President Putin using a body double due to alleged illness. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. And we're back. Cryptocurrency has been in the spotlight recently for its role in terrorist financing and funding militant groups. This comes after the continued conflicts in the region of the Middle East. Here with us live is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, what kind of role has crypto played in terrorist financing? Yeah, so Chris, you know, we already know that uh, Hamas has uh, crypto accounts linked to us. You know, Hamas itself has, has been raising money via cryptocurrency over the past few weeks. Uh, our lawmakers urged the government to crack down on the use of cryptocurrency by Hamas and its affiliates. And the Israelis as well have frozen several cryptocurrency wallets uh, as said were linked to Hamas. You know, actually, um, anyone can actually set up a cryptocurrency wallet address. And the addresses are uh, pseudonyms, uh, which means uh, people can send and receive cryptocurrency anonymously. Many people say that uh, crypto is an extremely useful tool for these kind of organizations. And, you know, Chris, on top of that, uh, the blockchain technology that underpins cryptocurrency operates digital digitally across borders, meaning that uh, it can act as an instant payment system. But, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, it's impossible to track, uh, but it does mean it is much more difficult than uh, regular transactions. So yep. that's just a general overview for you. For sure. So exactly how much is crypto used in terrorist financing? 
Well, Steph, the exact number uh, might be hard to calculate, but a uh, United Nations official said that in 2022, uh, a couple of years ago, 5% of terrorist attacks were considered to be five, fi financed by crypto. But according to Bloomberg, this number may go up to 20%. So, you know, it looks like crypto's role is increasing. But, you know, still some analysts say that terrorist financing represents a small fraction of less, less than 1% of the entire crypto market. So, you know, when uh, illicit finance flows are identified at a crypto firm, that doesn't necessarily mean all of the firm's flows are tainted. Um, you know, at the same time, a variety of cryptocurrencies are known to be used by terrorist groups and militant groups to raise funds. Uh, Bitcoin is one of them and is popular and staple coins too have become more popular in recent years as well. What are some of the other forms of illicit finance, Don? Right, you know, so even though we're talking about uh, crypto today, it's uh, just one method of financing among a number of ways. Terrorist groups use methods to move money such as cash, banks, uh, shell companies, charities, and informal financial networks. The global body responsible for uh, tackling money laundering and terrorist financing says that this year, crypto presents increasing terrorist financing risks, but that the vast majority of terrorist financing still uses uh, regular money. All right, thanks so much, John. Thank you. And now we switch to some short headlines. Senator Tim Scott is increasing his staff in Iowa and shifting resources to the early voting state. He's working to revive his campaign to be the GOP nominee for president. Former President Donald Trump is the heavy favorite to win the Republican primaries that kick off on January 15th in Iowa. But Trump has shown some weakness among Iowa's crucial evangelical voters. Scott and other presidential contenders hope to capitalize on that vulnerability. The senator from South Carolina plans more on advertising in the Midwest state. His campaign said he will travel to Iowa every week until the nomination vote in January. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is proposing new legislation to curb crime in the district. According to Bowser, the Addressing Crime Ten Trends Now Act would help police perform their duties and keep communities safe. The mayor says they're making changes that recognize the day-to-day -day challenges officers face. The proposal would establish criminal penalties for organized retail theft. It also clarifies the distinction between a serious use of force and incidental contact with the neck for police. And officers could review their body camera footage in specific situations before filing a report. The law would also determine what information would be made public for alleged officer misconduct. The mayor of Maui County says tourists will be welcomed back on the western part of the island starting next week. According to Mayor Richard Bisson, visitors can return beginning November 1st. Tourism has been controversial on the island since the wildfire left nearly 100 people dead. It was the deadliest fire in the U.S. in over a century. Some residents had urged vacationers to hold off on their plans while the island dealt with the catastrophe. But local businesses hoped tourists would return so they could stay afloat. A super frog in Louisiana caused a massive pileup that killed at least seven and injured dozens more. 
The superfog was caused by fog mixing with smoke from nearby fires. There was a pileup of over 150 cars caught in the crash. Some of them caught fire. Visibility was near zero when the fog was at its worst yesterday. Authorities have asked the public to reach out if they know someone missing in the I-55 area of St. John the Baptist Parish yesterday. Marshals in Philadelphia arrested a man who has been wanted in the death of a teen for more than a year. Authorities believe 17-year-old Deron Bernie Thorne was involved in the killing of 14-year-old Nicholas Elizalde last September. He was shot to death outside a high school after playing in a football scrimmage. Four suspects were arrested shortly after the incident, but Bernie Thorne evaded authorities. Police thought he left the area. Authorities say they learned over the past few months that he had come back. They tracked him to an apartment and he tried to flee by leaping from a fourth floor window when marshals arrived. He has not been charged yet. An off-duty pilot is accused of trying to turn off a plane's engines mid-flight. He was riding as a passenger in the cockpit of an Alaska Airlines flight on Sunday. The flight had to divert to Portland, Oregon instead of landing as planned in San Francisco. This is the home of the suspect, 44-year-old Joseph Emerson in Pleasant Hill, California. American Airlines says he unsuccessfully tried to disrupt the operation of the engines. Specifically, an FAA memo says he tried to cut power by deploying the engine fire suppression system. The airline says the captain and first officer quickly responded, subdued him, and the engines stayed on. He was taken into custody by Portland police on the ground. Emerson is charged with 83 felony counts of attempted murder, 83 counts of reckless endangerment, and a count of endangering an aircraft. The FAA says the incident was not connected to current world events, a veiled reference to the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. Twelve police officers were shot dead in Mexico yesterday, along with a local security official. The attack was in the Guerrero State in El Payo, a small town on the Pacific coast. I insist this is still preliminary information and as soon as I can corroborate it, I will be able to share a little more information. Among them was the Secretary of Public Security of the aforementioned municipality. Government officials are finding themselves increasingly threatened in the region. Several powerful cartels continue to fight for control of the drug trade. This was the worst episode in a violent day that killed at least 19 people across southwestern Mexico. According to figures from Common Cause, over 340 police officers have been killed in Mexico so far this year. In Brazil, a teenager opened fire at a high school in Sao Paulo early Monday, killing one student and wounding two others. According to a local newspaper, a male student who had been frequently bullied has been identified as the shooter. Police have the suspect in custody. The victim who died was a 17-year-old girl. She had been shot in the head. It was Brazil's first school attack in months, following a string of them earlier this year. There have been almost two dozen violent episodes in Brazilian schools since 2000. Half have occurred in the last 18 months. It was not immediately clear how the student obtained the firearm.
Also in Brazil, gangs set at least 35 buses on fire in Rio de Janeiro yesterday. According to a Brazilian bus industry organization, this happened after police killed a crime boss. The attacks were concentrated in the west of the city. It's a region where rival criminal groups are fighting a turf battle. A police operation killed the nephew of the leader of the state's largest militia. Rio's so-called militias are often composed of current and former police officers. The self-defense force was originally set up for poor neighborhoods plagued by drug gangs. But they've grown into criminal outfits. Now these groups are one of the region's largest security threats. And now some short headlines from Europe. French President Emmanuel Macron today meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem. Macron proposed that an international coalition could fight against Hamas in Gaza. This is why France is prepared for the international coalition against the ISIS terrorist group, which we are already engaged with in our operation in Iraq and Syria, to also be able to fight against Hamas. I propose to our international partners, I discussed it with you this morning, that we can build a regional and international coalition to fight against the terrorist groups that threaten us all. The U.S. leads the coalition against ISIS that Macron talked about. The French president didn't give details on how the coalition of dozens of countries could be involved in the fight against Hamas. Macron also advocated to work toward a two-state solution. Netanyahu again vowed to destroy Hamas. Meanwhile, Germany's chancellor today advocated for support for Ukraine and the possibility of the country joining the European Union. Already at the European summit at the end of this week, we will underline our common will to financially support Ukraine. I will stand up so that by the end of the year, concrete solutions will be underway to secure long-term financial support for Ukraine in the coming years. He added that anyone who invests in Ukraine now is investing in a future EU member state. He said more than 2,000 German businesses are already operating in Ukraine despite the war. 35,000 employees work at suppliers to Germany's auto sector. Berlin is also set to host a Ukraine reconstruction conference in June. And Ukraine says it'll take on the country's oligarchs. Ukraine's justice minister made remarks on Monday. Most of the assets uh, or most of the activities of oligarchs in the country could be seen as actually economic crimes. And given the decreased uh, influence of oligarchs, uh, they uh, are no longer persons uh, out of sight of investigative agencies. So investigative agencies, prosecution offices are not afraid of them. He added that it's now easier to get access to documents, to witnesses, and to case files, which was impossible a couple of years ago. He says things are changing due to shifting political realities and the war with Russia. This comes as investigators probe several prominent billionaires for crimes like embezzlement, fraud, and money laundering. And Russia Today commented on the health of President Vladimir Putin. A Kremlin spokesman denied claims that Putin is ill and using body doubles. The spokesman said Putin is in good health. He called the theory an absurd hoax. This comes after media outlets reported that Putin had suffered a serious health episode on Sunday evening. 
Meanwhile, Russia is extending detention of an American journalist until December. The journalist works for Radio Free Europe, which is funded by the U.S. Russia designated the which is funded by the U.S. Russia, Russia designated the radio as a foreign agent on the grounds that it gets foreign funding for political activity. She's the second U.S. journalist to be arrested and charged in Russia since the start of its war in Ukraine. And here in the U.S., the State Department approved three potential arms sales to Europe. The sales would go to the United Kingdom, Finland, and Lithuania. Ukraine's European allies continue to stock up on munitions after flooding Kyiv with donations. European demand for U.S. weaponry is soaring. They mostly request less sophisticated items such as shoulder-fired missiles, artillery, and drones. Those things have proven critical to Ukraine's war efforts. And lastly, a former employee for the NSA admitted he tried to sell the top-secret information to Russia. He pleaded guilty to the charges on Monday. The former employee tried selling the info to a person he believed was a Russian agent. It was actually an undercover FBI agent. The former NSA employee requested $85,000 for all of his information. He's now reportedly facing over 20 years in prison. And now some quick news about China. China has removed Defense Minister Li Shangfu from his position. This happened after he was out of the public eye for about two months without a clear explanation. He's the second high-ranking official to be let go in the past three months. Additionally, Qin Gang, the former foreign minister, had his state councillor role taken away. The reasons behind these removals are unknown. However, there were suspicions that Li was under investigation for corruption. As for Qin, there were rumors of an extramarital affair during his time as ambassador to the U.S. With their ousting, the number of China's state councillors is now down to three. This unexpected shakeup comes just as China is set to host foreign defense officials at the Xiangshan Forum in Beijing. And speaking of the Xiangshan Forum, the U.S. Defense Department is reportedly sending a delegation to the gathering. That's according to Chinese state media China Daily. Over 90 countries and international organizations have also confirmed their attendance. The forum will take place in Beijing at the end of October. The U.S. also attended in 2019 when it was last held in person. Meanwhile, the U.S.-China Economic Working Group held its first meeting via video call. The meeting was led by senior officials from the U.S. Treasury and the Chinese Ministry of Finance with a focus on domestic and global macroeconomic developments. The panel was established last month. A Washington state senator was arrested in Hong Kong for carrying an unregistered gun while on vacation with his wife. The senator, Jeff Wilson, was released on bail. The gun was registered in Washington, but not in Hong Kong. Wilson reported the gun to customs authorities upon landing in Hong Kong. He said it was an honest mistake and expects the situation to be resolved. Wilson appeared in court and was charged with possession of arms without a license. He, his next hearing is on October 30th. He had to surrender his travel documents after the hearing. Carrying a firearm without a license in Hong Kong is illegal and can result in a fine of up to $12,000 plus a maximum sentence of 14 years. 
When we come back, art-loving New Yorkers gathered at the Lincoln Center over the weekend for Shen Yun Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. We hear reactions from audience members. Paddling in giant pumpkins. Hundreds of competitors took part in a unique river race in Belgium. We have more on one of Europe's most bizarre festivals soon when we return. Welcome back. Art-loving New Yorkers gathered at the Lincoln Center on Sunday for Shen Yun Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. After a standing ovation, some audience members described it as a healing experience. Let's take a look. The return of the Shenyun Symphony Orchestra was met with a cheerful and welcoming audience in New York City. It was their first stop to Lincoln Center in four years. It calms my soul and we need that. It's beautiful. Very uplifting and uh, nourishing to the spirit. Orchestra is unbelievable. The composer, you could tell, is very talented. With the sound of a gong ringing through the hall, the orchestra kicked off the show with one of Shenyun's most acclaimed compositions, Salvation During End Times. The program included original music written by Shenyun Performing Arts' in-house composers, as well as Western classical favorites like Dvorak's From the New World and Finlandia. The orchestra also performed a well-known classical Chinese music piece called The Butterfly Lovers. Shenyun Symphony Orchestra draws inspiration from 5,000 years of Chinese civilization, bringing stories and legends to life. The music emphasized Asian culture, and it has, I felt like the history, so much history, of our own lives and of other people's lives were represented in the room. I, I saw movies. It sounded like a movie soundtrack. I could just see things going on when I heard the music. It just lights me up. It's so gorgeous. The New York-based orchestra combines both Western and Eastern instruments, blending ancient Chinese instruments and melodies into a classical symphony orchestra. members call the performance uplifting. It's very good energy, it's very positive, uh, it makes you feel good when you're listening to it and it's uh, like in today's times it's very nice to have such a positive experience. Understanding that beauty is part of our heart and the essence of every human being is very much a traditional value and things that elevate the spirit like this music uh, awaken us to our conscience and being better people. Shenyun Performing Arts showcases classical Chinese dance, along with original music, aiming to revive traditional Chinese culture before communism. The company brings brand new performances every year. A new season of Shenyun begins in December. If you often feel tired, dizzy, or thirsty, then you may be dehydrated stuff. Well, dehydration is a common culprit for headaches, but it may be linked to two other unexpected diseases. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. What if improving depression and lowering your risk of dementia was as simple as drinking more water? Dehydration is usually linked to low blood pressure, increased heart rate and headache. 
but it's also related to two unexpected diseases. Without water, an adult can only survive for about three days. This makes perfect sense given that an adult's body is about 60% water. Water is important for so many different bodily functions and organs, including the brain. Dehydration can cause illness, death, and worsen a variety of medical conditions. You can lose water through fever, sweat, vomiting, and diarrhea. Some medications such as diuretics can also cause dehydration by increasing urination. A lack of water in the body can cause dizziness, headaches, tiredness, dry mouth, and constipation. Although it isn't widely known, depression and anxiety have been linked to dehydration. So make sure to increase your water intake as it has the potential to improve your mood. Dehydration has been linked to poor sleep. This can also be a contributing factor to depression and anxiety. Research has shown that even mild dehydration can have an adverse effect on cognitive performance. Mild dehydration results in decreased attention, increased anxiety, tension and fatigue. So is there a link between dehydration and dementia? A German study showed that higher dehydration was associated with a more significant decline in cognitive functioning. Another study investigated the connection between dehydration and the risk of dementia. It revealed some worrisome results. The study determined that dehydrated individuals had a higher risk of dementia. The total amount of fluid you need to stay hydrated may need to be modified. It depends on your exercise level, hot or humid weather, fever, vomiting, diarrhea, pregnancy, and breastfeeding. Not feeling thirsty and producing colorless or light yellow urine are usually indicators of adequate hydration. Next, a river race with a Halloween twist. A small town in Belgium grows giant pumpkins, then hollows them out and takes them on the water. Take a look. More than 350 people battled it out in Castelli, Belgium, by paddling in giant pumpkins as part of one of Europe's most bizarre festivals, the Pumpkin Regatta. One of last year's winners in fancy dress has returned to contend again. The pumpkins are made in the morning by the organization and then we just have to step inside, take the pedals and just row for life. Ninety teams of four people take part, using huge pumpkins or squash grown by the Pumpkin Society. The fun event began in 2008 and attracts between four and five thousand people each year made up of competitors, supporters and onlookers coming from different countries. We are from Italy and Spain, but we work here in Belgium. We live in Brussels, yes. We got to know about this festival. We saw it was super funny and so we just enrolled. And it's not the only race of its kind. The president of the Pumpkin Society says there are others in the USA and in Canada. Man, this takes Cinderella to a whole new level. Oh my gosh, yeah, that would. If you had to get dressed up to get in those little boats. Oh my gosh. Do you know how, the big, how big the biggest pumpkin in North America is? I do not know. Uh, 2,700 pounds. Uh, just this month, a Minnesota man set the record uh, for the largest, at least in North America. I don't know about Belgium. Wow, that is, that is huge. I wonder what they do with all of the uh, you know, stuffing parts, of the, Ooh, in the flesh. A lot of pie. That would be a pretty nice pie. Wow. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.